In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit of God, Amen. We spoke about what happened in Jonah in chapter 1, and we said that Jonah, for the full period, he did not pray until they threw him into the sea. Before that, Jonah did not pray, and even the captain of the ship gave him a choice. He told him, pray or you will perish. He chose to completely disobey God. He refused to pray, and he said, you know what, I will not repent. I will die and not repent. That's basically what he decided to do. Today, chapter 2 is the prayer of Jonah in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea. He finally, Jonah finally learned to pray. When did he pray? When the environment was overwhelming, he could not breathe. Like, I, I want you guys to think about this. Jonah did not pray immediately. Probably, sorry, the fish did not swallow him immediately. Probably they threw him into the water. It took it, it took it a few seconds or maybe a couple of minutes until the fish swallowed him. In the midst of this moment, when he was in the water, where he was fighting for his life, he decided to pray. It was not before anything. And that, by the way, is difficult. When you're, imagine if you're drowning, the last thing that will come to your mind probably at this point is to pray. You want to save your life. So we'll start from chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a beautiful prayer he prayed inside, inside the water. He said, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish belly. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish belly. You see here, finally, it's not only Jonah prayed, but he prayed to who? His God. And finally, he decided to tell God, God, I will not disobey you. I want to talk to you. Remember, in the first chapter, I was telling you what Jonah connected the worship of God to Jerusalem. And he said that I will, I, I will go to Tarshish. Why we go to Tarshish? Because we said in Isaiah, God said he, does not reveal, he has not revealed himself or his glory to Tar in Tarshish. Now, where is Jonah is praying? Jonah is praying from the depth of the water. Already, his mind is changing. He's learning to call God from the depth of the water, from the belly of the fish, which is not normal, not usual. And he starts praying, and he starts talking about the story of his delivery. One thing that I want you guys to think about as we're going through this book, you will see that there is a lot of inner thing that's happening with Jonah. He goes into the ship. Into the, into the ship's belly. He sleeps. He's into the fish belly. There's a lot of inner experience that's happening in his life. A lot of the change that happens is not external. I was actually reading a beautiful book, and the saint in the book, she's saying, God, change me from internal, but do not let people notice that I'm changed. I'm being a saint from inside. There is an inner transformation that's happening inside. Now, from verse uh, 2 to verse 9, this is basically a prayer of Jonah, and we call it a psalm. It's almost like a psalm of Jonah. We'll just give you the structure, because the structure will help you. Verse 2, 
is basically an introduction or kind of a summary of the prayer. Basically, he's given the overall summary of the prayer. From verse 3 to verse 6, he's talking about the details of the personal crisis. And verse 6 is kind of split halfway. Half of it ends with his personal crisis. The other half, he starts talking about God rescuing him. And verse, uh, from verse 6 to verse 8. And verse 9, he starts promising that he will praise God. So verse 2 is a summary. From 3 to 6, he's summarizing the personal crisis. 6 to 8 is a divine rescue. And 9, he's promising that he will praise God. Now think about it this way. This prayer, this psalm, obviously Jonah did not write it while he was in the belly of the fish. It's probably after he came out, he was talking to somebody and somebody asked him, how did you feel? What happened when you were inside the fish? So now he's talking about what's inside the fish. But before, we go, before I go into the psalm, I just want to explain a quick word. There's a word that we'll hear a lot. It's called shallow. Okay, S-H-E-O-L. The word shallow, sometimes people think of it as Hades, but also sometimes it's thought of as a tomb or the grave of the person. So Jonah is going to pray from the grave. Jonah is going to pray from the grave, from where he thought, I am dying, and the, and the fish is the box that they bury me in, and I'm going to pray. Okay? So we'll start together with verse 2. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shallow, I cried, and you heard my voice. This is a summary of the whole prayer. I cried out from the midst of my affliction. You know, God brought him to a point, and at that point, you know, like when you want to revenge from somebody, you can abuse him. When he brought, when he was humiliated, when he was humbled, he cried to the Lord, and the Lord immediately answered. He cried when he was in the grave, the most desperate moment in his life. And the Lord heard his voice. What does that mean, the Lord, his voice? When you're in the grave, when you're in the tomb, nobody can hear you. You guys know the expression, saved by the bell. You guys heard this expression before. You know what it means? In the old days, they used to bury people. And sometimes people, and in the old days, they did not, were not medically advanced. So they don't know if somebody actually died or not. So they found a couple of cases where people, you know, were in coma or something. And then in a day or two, they wake up. Uh, they were, they, they were, didn't understand what happened. So sometimes when they bury people, they put a small bill in, like a connection to the bill. So if this person is breathing, he will, he will hit the bill, and then they will, they will save him, saved by the bill. This is almost God, what God is doing here. God heard his voice where nobody else can hear him. I'll tell you guys something, why is this verse significant? Look in Isaiah 38:18. what does it say? For shallow, the grave, cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The scripture says clearly in Isaiah that if I am in shallow, I cannot talk to God. Somehow Jonah's mind was able to understand something new. That he can pray from the grave. And by the way, this is repentance. When I start understanding God knew 
and not the intellectual understanding, but the internal realization of what God wants. He had a near-death experience, and he was risen from the dead. That's what happened with him. From verse 3 to verse 6, it's the details of his personal crisis. Why is that important? Before I go through these verses, it is important for us to learn when we pray, we mention the details in prayer. When I give thanks to God, it's not enough to say, I thank you, God. Why do you thank him? Most people are not interested in the details of your life, but God is. If you have a problem and you talk to God, show him how. I was actually, I go off tangent and then continue. I was actually consumed with an idea for the past three weeks. As I was reading the, the life of the saints for some time, they say we prayed for one person for a full hour. And in my mind, I was like, how do you pray for a person for four hours? Like, what could you possibly say? And then about a week ago, uh, we had a prayer meeting and somebody joined from Canada. And then she asked, yeah, would anybody has anything they want us to pray for? For somebody said something. She spent 25 minutes praying for that one person, for that one request. She walked through the journey. This person was sick and they're asking for prayer. She started praying for everything. Thank, first of all, thank God. She started talking about his current situation, the feelings he could have, the decision he's going about to do, the people around him, the hospitals where he's going to have every situation. She walked through the journey in her prayer. Details in prayer is important. Do not be quick with God. This is what's going to happen with Jonah where he's going to explain what happened. He said, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows, all your waves have passed over me. This beautiful verse. What's happening? Jonah at some point did not see that everything belongs to God. Today he's telling him, God, you casted me into the sea. The waves are yours. The billows are yours. The flood surrounds me. Everything that's happening around me is from you. This is when you know somebody repented. When they start seeing the hands of God everywhere. This is the power of tribulation. The more I doubt, and the more I'm self-reliant, and the more that I see everything around me distant from God, the more I'm farther away from repentance. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. When he was in the belly of the fish, he told God, I was cast out of your sight. The word cast out, there's another better word for it. It's called banished from your sight. And that expression in the Old Testament was used to express divorce. When somebody, when a husband divorces his wife, you will see it in Leviticus 21.7. So he's telling God, I was disqualified from becoming your prophet, your, your son. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. What does it mean, yet I will look again toward your holy temple? He's telling God, I will no longer disobey you. Remember last chapter, he claimed, 
I will disobey you, God. I don't want to follow you. Now when he tells him, I will look toward the holy temple, it means I am going to change my mind. I will come back and worship you. I will come back and follow you. Uh, the Septuagint translation, instead of having yet, I will look again, it says, shall I indeed look again? The Septuagint phrases this as a question. He's offering repentance and desiring to speak to God where? In the place of worship. Why? Because this will show that it's a restoration of his normal relationship to God. Verse 5 says, The water surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Imagine if he's telling the story to somebody. He's telling him, you know, the, the deepest type of plants that grows in the ocean. It was all around me. Water surrounded me even to my soul. It means that he, at, at some point, knew that he's going to die. He's describing the state when he's hopeless. Be careful. Why, why is this important? Why is Jonah is in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the water? It's because of his sin. It's because of his own decisions. And even in the depth of sin and the depth of, of, the depth of his own doing, he's still able to pray to God. Be careful because the devil wants to have a lot of discouraged souls. He wants to discourage you. And at this point we see Jonah prays even when the situation he is in is because of his own doing. Even if your sin brings you to a point where you feel there's no return, there is a return. The only person that convinces you there is no, there's no return is the devil. Verse 6, there's a little bit, this is where the shift happens. After he says his story, now he's going to talk about the work of God. I went down to the mornings of the mountain, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. There was an understanding in the ancient time that the roots of the mountain is under the sea. So he's saying that I came down to the deepest part of the sea and the bars closed me. What is the word bars closed me? There was an understanding that shallow or Hades or the tomb is under the ground. You know, we always talk about heaven up, shallow down. And he almost feels that he was entrapped, that he was going in Hades. And you will see this, for example, in Isaiah 38, 10. It said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of shallow. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. So he goes in and he feels he was surrounded in Hades. The bars around him, the devil are closing onto him. He's virtually dead. Virtually dead. But what happened? But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the turning point. The fish did not eat me. 
because of God's gracious intervention by the great fish, I'm saved. Jonah was originally divorced from God, but now he's remarried to him. And now what happens? This is another sign of true repentance. He was overcame with praise to God. Because God has shown compassion to him. Verse 7 says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up into you, into your holy temple. A lot of uh, people call Jonah the prodigal son of the Old Testament. He ran away from God, and when he came back, God was standing with his arms open to take him. He said what? He said, my soul fainted within me, but then I remembered God. The remembrance of God makes a big difference. That's why our church teaches us to constantly remember God. Our spiritual life is not placing God in certain times. That's a failure in a spiritual life. Our spiritual life is a constant association with God, like St. Isaac the Syrian said. Constant association with God. I love how he keeps repeating Holy Temple. It's, it's the, the place, the church. I miss the church. When you go visit together somebody who's elderly, who's sick, even when you give them communion at home, they tell you, I can't wait to pray in the church. The holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Now he's admitting here his own sins. He says, I used to worship idols. Because I rejected God and I followed my own desire, my own decision, and I was under peer pressure. Those who regard worthless idols forsake what? Mercy. When I am insisting on walking on sin, I do not enjoy the mercies of God. When I do not enjoy the mercies of God, I do not taste God. And here he's saying, to enjoy the mercies of God, you have to forsake. Otherwise you can't. And verse 9, he makes a promise to praise God. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is, a, is the Lord. You know what's so beautiful? What is he saying? He says, I will what? I will sacrifice and I will vow. Who sacrificed and vowed in chapter 1? The sailors. Can you imagine? The sailors who are Gentiles had they offered repentance before Jonah did. And when he says he vows, it means what? It means that he's remembering his promises, his relationship with God. Jonah recognizes that he deserved death. But God delivered him. I tell you guys something. There's a beautiful fraction in the church that we pray and part of it, it says, would the glorified be humiliated? We talk about God. We say, would the glorified be humiliated? And I personally feel that every time God associates himself with me, he's humiliated. 
because I am full of sin, I am full of weakness, and he comes and he says, I want to unite with you. And this is what Jonah realized. He says, look, I deserve death only because of his mercy. A lot of times we as a churchgoer sometime, we forget that the little goodness that we have in us is not ours. And we seek God thinking that we are good. How can you take if you think you're good? No way. Repentance is a realization. You have to realize certain things. Otherwise, we won't be able to repent. Verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah into the dry land. I'll tell you guys something, and obviously the assignment of the fish is completed, and God completed his rescue for Jonah, but it's interesting that the, the Bible says the fish vomited him. Vomited is a sign of disgust, like the fish is like, you know, not happy with this guy. As if it's almost, because by the way, Jonah, if he did not write this book, he probably told the details to somebody who wrote it. So he's probably, and he's very detail-oriented. And Jonah is the best person who repented in the Bible. Because he's so detailed, he remembers all his mistakes. He probably, and later on, you guys all know the story, that he was not fully matured. As if almost like the fish was expressing the anger at him of what he's about to do. You know, the nature, the angels around us are looking and seeing. God is showing a lot of great mercy. And you're still not merciful. You still get angry with your parents. You're still not patient with your friends. You're still not able to hear somebody who's suffering. The fish vomited him, disgusted him. You take mercy, you want to give nothing. And then he started coming to the, the, the shore of Nineveh. Now, once Jonah at the shore, we're going to start ch uh, uh, chapter 3. You can think that chapter 3 is actually the greatest miracle that's happening in the book. What is the greatest miracle? That a full nation repented because of a sermon from the prophet. That is the greatest miracle that happened in this book. That a whole nation repented because of a sermon of the... By the way, I'll tell you guys something that I was thinking about this other day. If you look at all the prophets in the Old Testament, almost all of them failed in their message. Jeremiah, people did not repent. Isaiah, people did not repent. Joel, name them. People did not repent. Who was the only one that succeeded in making people repent? Jonah, and he did not want to do it. Can you imagine the amount of resistance to the work of God? The greatest miracle to be done is for the hearts to change. And this happened from a disobedient prophet. It blows my mind away. It blows my mind away. 
Obviously, we don't know how long it took once the fish vomited him. It took him to kind of be back in shape. But from verse 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now Jonah is almost back where he started. We went, he wasted so much time. This is what sin does in our life. It makes us waste a lot of time. And then we go back to where we were. Okay? Obviously, now he's a different Jonah. But improved Jonah. He learned some lessons. Now look at this beautiful verse that God says. He says, go to Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. I actually, this verse kind of took me by surprise. I've always thought that the message, Jonah knew it completely. But this verse does not say that. It says, the message I tell you. Maybe once he went to the city, God put in his heart what he should say. But Jonah was confident that when he teaches, God will speak. When he speaks, God will speak. You see, Kida, when you look at this, you see how patient God is with his children. He comes first time, second time, and with the same message. If God is sending you the same message over and over again, be careful. I want you to be more patient. I want you to be more humble. You are preventing flow of grace in your life. Don't just take it lightly. You are building walls between you and God. When are we truly going to repent? This is what God is saying. I will talk to you a second time, a third time. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Nineveh is a great city that's close to God. According to the word of the Lord... Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So you can think about it now. Jonah is making his grand entrance into the city. Okay? We don't know if people saw him at the, at the shore, but the, probably the story kind of flowed around that this man came from the fish or somebody might have seen him. But also he looks different. He dressed different. His skin color probably is different. So he makes into, he walks into the city and he kind of starts making his journey. Two things I want to tell you. There are two possibilities. Either the whole city took him about three days to travel so he can preach the word of God because obviously this is the best way is to go from one place to another, one place to another. Or in the oriental practice, any visitation takes three days because the first day they receive you you know, it's like you're resting from the journey. And then the second day, you talk about the, the reason why you came. And then the third day, you leave the departure. This is a typical visitation because people travel long distance. It's not like here where you just drive. It's all long distance and people walking in the sand and sweaty and all that. So they, have, they need to take a day to rest and then the second day to... It looks like most likely the whole city was three days. He walked the city three days. Okay? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it just doesn't matter, but I just want to keep that in, in your mind. Now, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This message was probably dramatic to hear. 
He walks in and he tells people, 40 days and your city will be destroyed. What is Nineveh? A great city, a great people, lots of walls, protected. They have so many self-reliance. Yes, by the way, just to, to give you a full picture, at this time, some historians were saying that the Ninevites have, have, were, were expecting some famine, were expecting some wars to come, in, to come in. So the message kind of also hit home. But also, it is very difficult message to believe. We as people like to think of what's the alternative. We have famine, but let's think of how can we solve the famine. We have war, but let's think of how we can defend ourselves. Those people took the message so serious. One thing just on the side, just to keep in mind, some people say, this is one of the reasons why people say this book is not historical. How could Jonah, whose Hebrew speaks the language of Assyrian? But if you look in Second King 18, from 26 to 28, there are Assyrian officials who spoke in Jerusalem in Hebrew. A lot of this culture were, were, were close to each other, that they were aware of each other's language. They had a lot of trade going on. Now look at Jonah's message. It's a very short message. He said, then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He did not tell them repent. He said, 40 days and this city will be overthrown. They probably implied from his message that they have to repent. You can think of your mind that Jonah, yani he was not a big fan of them to repent. So he just did the bare minimum. 40 days and will the city will be overthrown. That shows the seriousness of sin. One of the worst things that the devil is doing is to make us feel that sin is not a big deal. Truly, I, 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 and when somebody comes and sits with me and says, I, wanna, I do the sins that everybody does. No. Where did you get this from? This is from the devil. What do you mean the sin that everybody does? There is a seriousness of sin. I have to know my own responsibility. I have to know my own responsibility. Origen said, God's decree regarding salvation or punishment lies in the response of the hearers as to what God's will do or do not. The decision is in our hands. God is constantly calling us to change. Imagine Kida, if somebody comes today and walks Kida in the United States of America and says, 40 days and New Jersey will perish. How many people would take him seriously? How many people would start asking him why, when, who, where? Look at what happened to the people of Nineveh. Look at what happened to the people. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Proclaimed a fast. Put on a sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
Now, when the news spread like fire in Nineveh, what happened? People said, we all must fast. This, by the way, was not a call by the king, was not a call by a priest. Every single person was touched. Now, their fasting, my friends, were different. Their fasting was different. They fast, no water, no food. They put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is a, is a clothes that is not comfortable. It's made out of the hair of the animals. This is the true way of fasting. Oh, Saka, I ate hamburger. I forgot Mushaf Amalti. I forgot I drank water. I forgot today is Wednesday. I forgot Mushaf. How is that a reflection of free repentance? Tababuna, I don't have to fast from midnight. Can we make it five? Can we make it six? Can we make it nine? Real repentance. They are resisting. The whole point of fasting is to overcome your body, your physical needs. If you do not control them, if you do not tame them, how are you repenting? This is what he's saying. I have headache. Yes, you should have headache. This is part of the body need. I am hungry. Yes, you should be hungry. What's the big deal? You're not going to die. Real fasting, real prayers, real repentance. Wahad fasting, on his bed, under the cover, watching Netflix. How is that fasting? How is that repentance? Do not make our fast just changing food. It benefits nothing. It becomes a burden on you and me. Let's make our fast a, an opportunity to change. This is the turning point in their life. They believed. Believed that fasting and prayer will change them. This is the fraction that we pray in the, in the church before we start our fast. Fasting and prayer will cast out demons. This is what the saints did. This is what the martyrs did. This is what all the great saints have followed. The revival broke out in the city from day one. Jeremiah himself, when he preached his own people, Israel, the people of the church, us, they did not repent. They tried to kill him. People of Nineveh. They repented. Look, Jesus Christ himself witnessed to them. He said, The men of Nineveh will rise up on the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed greater than Jonah is here. Indeed greater than Jonah is here. From every person who has power, who has money, who has comfort, they gave up their comfort. You don't tell me I'm going to fast, I'm going to be on TikTok all day long or Netflix all day long. We're doing all these stupid things. This is not a fast. If you keep your comfort with you, you're not fasting. You're just dieting. You're just changing food. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. 
You know, I'll tell you guys something. The way that the Ninevites fasted and prayed is not common in their worship. Most likely they started adopting a Jewish style of worship. Most likely, what happened? They actually converted to Judaism. They became Jews. They fasted, they repented, they prayed. All their customs, all their habits, all changed at the same time. All changed at the same time. They wore sackcloth. Sackcloth, the people that wear sackcloth, it's either when you're mourning or you're very poor. And most of the prophets actually wore sackcloth when they, when they were uh, preaching. Think about it this way. A single sermon changed a whole nation. And when our Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to the Pharisees, a sermon after sermon, a miracle after miracle, a song after song, no change. That's Jesus. I could be in the camp of the Pharisees, where I come all the time. I hear sermon after sermon, talk after talk, and I am indifferent. No effect, no change. Nothing makes a difference. I accepted the standards of the world. God will never praise a repentance unless it's like Nineveh's repentance. Look at verse 6. Okay. The word came to the king of Nineveh. The king. And he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. He saw the whole city repenting. Everybody's repenting. They were not waiting for a, a buna or a servant or a bishop or a... They started. They're working, they're serving, they're moving. The whole city moved the king. Even the king who lives the most comfortable life changed. He humbled himself and he became like everybody else. Put aside his robe and he identified himself with those who are dead. Because they sat in ashes. Ashes, people do this when people die. It's almost like they want to let the old nature die. Here, St. Augustine said, the king of Nineveh is led up as an example of repentance, which has resulted in the salvation of a whole city. Resulted in the salvation of a whole city. Verse 7 says, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by a decree of the king and his nobles, even the nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. I just want to go off attention and come back. There's a guy, his name is D.J. Wiseman. He actually found a decree from the Assyrian time in the early 8th century BC that calls for general state of mourning and prayer. You and all your people, your land, your midwives. 
just for the sake of people who doubt this book. They're fasting, they're wearing uncomfortable clothes as a sign of self-denial. Now, the animals themselves are fasting. Imagine if the animals are fasting, guess what's going to happen? When you walk in the city, you're going to hear the voices of the animals. They're unhappy because they're not eating. Making the animal fast is an unusual step. Who's in the right his mind? Who, yani, who's in the right mind will make his animal fast? If you have a cat or a dog, be like, okay, great Lent now, you have to fast. Who will do that? The more, more crazy than this, they make, made the animal put, they put on sackcloth as well. There is a seriousness in their repentance. Yes, you might find what they're doing is crazy, but there is a sign of seriousness in their fast and repentance. It's not just anything. They're avoiding all means of comfort in their fast. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is at hand. What's happening with their fast? Yes, fasting, prayer, uncomfortable clothes. The animals are uncomfortable now because they're making a lot of noise. What's also, what else is happening? You cry mightily to God. You pray with all your strength. When you fast and you don't eat, when you abstain from food, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be tired, you're going to be yawning. They're saying at this point, they bring all the strength they have left and they pray. They prayed wholeheartedly to turn to God. And obviously, they were commanded to turn away from their violence. One of the archaeologists said, the Assyrian rec records are nothing but a dry register of military campaigns, exploitations, and cruelty. They are cruel people. All what they do is violence. So it's not only they pray hard, but they have to change their own habits, their own sins, their own mistakes. We want to learn of their repentance. I wish we can fast like them. I wish we can fast like them. Try to stay away from the means of comfort. If you're fasting and watching football games all day long, or playing Xbox all day long, either. You're using means of comfort just to make you lose track of time. And then mom makes you all the nice fasting food that almost tastes like fatari food. And then you say, I don't benefit from fast. Because fasting is a period for repentance. And it has come with all these elements. Fasting, uncomfort in our life. It has to come with praying mightily to God has to come with moral and behavior change. We must practice what we say. We must practice what we say. We'll conclude with the verse 9. 
And he said, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? The Ninevites did not have any previous experience with God's mercy. And this is the same expression that the sailors have used in chapter 1. That God may have mercy on us. They knew that salvation comes from God. They knew that salvation comes from God. But they did not know if they deserve the salvation. If God will give it to them. They did not understand the mercies of God. And by the way, as you guys know, obviously the word repents does not mean, obviously, that God is changing his mind. Okay? It's, a, it's not, it's not the, the right translation. It means that God claimed an action if you're not going to do this. So this is a consequence of your action. If you respond to God, you will get option B. If you don't respond, you will get option A. So this is a response to the action of the human being. Even though, look, when we stand in front of God, we have a lot of confidence in His mercy and who He is. But I also like the attitude of, of the Ninevites. They did not feel they earned the mercies of God. Because we don't earn it. They begged Him and they asked God, would you have mercy on us? The most beautiful verse about repentance. I'm not standing in front of God entitled. Look, I fast, I pray, I'm doing all this stuff. No. After the four things we've done, the fifth thing is the humility in fasting. And that's how a fast becomes a true fast. A changing fast. I remember Kida when I was talking to somebody, he told me that during the time of Pope Shenouda, Pope Shenouda, they claimed a three-day fast across the church. And he used to pray every, a liturgy every day. He told me he would finish his school. Once he finished, they would walk straight to the cathedral to pray the liturgy. After they pray the liturgy, they fast from midnight. Right? They, they go to the liturgy, they take communion, after they take communion, they greet Sayyidina, and he says, in the way home, we're singing the songs that we were singing during the, the communion. And he says, I go home, I do my homework, and even though it was a three-day fast because there was something serious happening, but he said, I felt so joyous. He says, we go to sleep, I could not wait until next day to wake up and do the same thing. Jonah's fast is only three days. It starts tomorrow. And it's short, and I can, yani, obviously when the Great Lent starts, you might feel it's long. But let's practice real fast in those three days. Let's give up all the comfort that we have in our life. One of the things that's preventing us from meeting God is that our mind is so not clear. Clarity of mind leads us to God. If your mind is not clear, you're not going to be able to talk to him. But we want those three days as a cleansing process. Like mom is cleaning the house. 
those three days kada is a process where I'm cleaning the house. I'm cleaning my thoughts. I'm putting everything aside. No, 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 no nonsense. No social media. No three days kada were a peace where I could kada sit, free my mind, and try to find what is the message that God is telling me. With the five elements of the fast, fasting, uncomfortable clothes and uncomfortable things we do, uh, praying mightily to God, also humility, the, the, the humility that we need to do and change in our moral, moral behavior. Five things that the Ninevites did in their fast that made Jesus witness to them and say they have responded to the message of Noah and Jonah and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.